Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. Good morning, church. Excited to be here with you. My name is Corey. If you're new, I'm one of the pastors on staff. Good to be your teaching pastor uh, for today. I'm very excited uh, for Revelation chapter 2. Last week, I was, man, super intimidated. This week, I'm still super intimidated, but we're in it. So there's really no turning back at this point. I am um, ecstatic to be here. I'm excited to just bring you to where I've already been all week. And so hopefully you're willing uh, to walk with me uh, to where the Lord is already Taking me. We're starting week two, uh, the book of Revelation, looking at chapter two. And so the first three chapters, let me remind you, are the most important chapters of the book of Revelation. Everything that's coming, all the apocalyptic imagery, everything that's coming here shortly, that is coming, by the way, is hinged upon chapters one, chapter two, and chapter three. Chapter one was here's all about who Jesus is, here's what Jesus has done. This should sound a little bit like DNA questions for those of you that are part of that disciple making process. Who is God and what has he done is chapter one. Then chapter two is who are we and how do we respond? And so chapter two is really, and three, is broken up into uh, five different sections. And so I want to give you this on the front end. If you could put this up for me, Miss Debbie. Chapter two and three is broken up into five different sections. Every section that's on the church is broken up into these five Section. So I'm, I don't have the time to hit all five of these in every single portion that we're going to, every church we're looking at, okay? If I were getting to preach it week, one church a week, we would hit all five. I know there's three, there's two more coming. We would hit all five of those every week and lay it out. So what I want you to do, I want you to write this down. If you're a note taker or regardless, write down these five things I'm going to give you this week in your missional community or by yourself or with your family. Look at these five things within each section of the church, and I promise you, you will learn more about the book of Revelation than you learn your whole walk. It's going to be great. So there's five things. The first three are this, Christ's characteristic. Each section that I'm going to hit is going to reveal an attribute of Christ that is given specifically to the church that he is addressing. Jesus knows his church and knows what they need, and so he gives a very specific attribute. All of those attributes come out of chapter 1. So you have to know chapter 1 and be acquainted with chapter 1 to understand chapter 2. Imagine that. The next thing you're going to see is in church culture. You're going to get some idea of what is happening to that church in light of the culture that she exists in. And then you're going to see a commendation. Hey, this is going pretty well. Good job, church. This is going well. I, I want to encourage you in this, Jesus is going to say. And then if you flip to the next one for me, Miss Debbie, you have two left. You're going to see a correction. This is not going well, a critique. This is not going to well. He's going to say something like, but I have this against you. There's a correction there. And then there's an ultimate challenge that is in all of the sections that is, that is this. He who has an ear, let him hear. Now, take those things. Hopefully, you've written them down. The most important things that are written within a Greek uh, literature is going to be the thing that comes at the beginning and the thing that comes at the end. And so when you look at all of seven of these churches, the first thing that we see is a character trait of Christ that has been given specifically to the body. He's saying, look at Christ. 
Look at what he has. This is what he has for you. Everything commendable about you as a church is rooted in Christ. Look at that character trait. You tracking with me? I can wait. Okay, I got time. Okay, this is second gathering. We go, we can eat lunch together. We can keep continuing. We can do whatever we want. And then the, the next most important thing, the second thing is the challenge. He who has an ear, let him hear. He who has an ear, let him hear. So what Jesus is saying to the church as we're entering into this is, look at me, look at my character, look at my attributes, hear that, believe that, see that. Now with these two things in mind, now we engage what is happening in the church culture. Now we engage the correction, and now we engage the commendation, right? I can't preach it like that because it's not the way that it's, it's the way that it's written, but it doesn't preach that way. So I'm just giving you that to be able to use this week. You can listen for those things as I address them uh, here in the topic, or here in the sermon. The big idea for today is this, the gospel changes our perspective. The gospel changes our perspective. And, and here's what I mean uh, by that. Have you ever been in a, a conversation with someone, perhaps you're married and you enter into a conversation that quickly becomes an argument, right? And if you're anything like Corey in that moment, whenever you're arguing with your spouse and I'm arguing with Andrew, my goal is to win. I want to win that argument. I'm a wordsmith. I'm pretty good with words. I preach good, decent sermons. When I try to argue in sermons, though, it does not go well for Pastor Corey, okay? I usually lose even if I win. You guys know that, right? Whenever you try to win in marriage, it often feels a lot like losing, doesn't it? So what happens is she and I, Andrew and I, my wife and I, we can be in an argument, we can be fighting, and what'll happen uh, more often than not is what we realize is like we weren't actually fighting about the kids. We weren't fighting about towels. We weren't fighting about how much she spent on Amazon Prime. Instead, what we're fighting about is like some underlying condition that exists over here. Maybe she had a bad day at work. Maybe I had a bad day at work. Maybe she didn't meet her own expectations. Maybe I didn't meet my expectations. And there comes a moment sometimes when you're not trying to win, whenever you're like, man, I now see my perspective has changed, right? I understand there's something else that is happening over here. Then what happens? Hopefully, in that moment of grace, you become more gracious. You become more empathetic. You become more realistic about the thing that you're talking about, right? You become a little bit more gentle, hopefully, in your approach, a better listener, more empathetic. Like, your change of perspective is what changes the course of that conversation. You still with me? You can also look at it like maybe you're not married and you just have a relationship with someone, like a general relationship with someone. That change of perspective can go the opposite way. Instead of growing in empathy and compassion, you can actually begin to get to know someone and hear their story and spend more time with them. Maybe it's a dating relationship. Maybe it's a co-working relationship. And, and you find out there might come a time where you're like, man, I don't think I know you like I thought I knew you. There's some things about you that are actually a little uncomfortable. And instead of growing in empathy and grace, you actually become a little bit more apprehensive. You become a little bit more guarded. You become a little bit more standoffish because you know there's some things there that you don't need to be a part of. And so when you look at that, what was once a subtle cue now becomes a big warning light for you, right? The perspective can take you the opposite direction. Does that still make sense on what I'm saying? And so Revelation 2 is given to us to help shape and change our perspective, Okay, so you can have a perspective. We're going to look at the church, and we're going to see these commendations. This is going well. We're going to see some challenges. Ugh, that's not going so well. And then, so not only does our perspective change of the early church, but then it then by default forces the way that we view ourselves as a church. And there's going to be some things that are come out in us and say, man, we are crushing this thing. And then there's going to be some other things that come out like, that's a real challenge. There's some things that the, the Spirit of God in concert with the Word of God and Jesus needs to change. But the goal is to change our 
perspective. The big idea is that the gospel changes your perspective. Sound good? So we have five things to look at. Hopefully you wrote those down. Seven churches to explore. Roughly 40 minutes to get as much in as I can. And when time is up, it'll just be up. Okay? I'll do the best I can to fit it all in. You ready? Thank you. Thank you. Here we go. Ephesian church, Revelation 2, verse 1. We're going to basically read the whole chapter again. Each week we're going to read the whole chapter. Every single week. If you can't stand during all the reading, that's okay. Just take a seat. Okay? All right, now you ready? All right, here we go. There it is one more time. Revelation 2, 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, I love this, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So we can pause. Right here, there's this Christ attribute. There's a Christ characteristic of Jesus that is revealed, revealed saying Jesus is the one who holds the church. Jesus walks among the church. What he's saying is Jesus has the, the stars, has the spirit, the very power of God in his hand, and that is how Jesus walks among the church, right? Is Jesus in the room right now? Not in a bodily, physically form. No, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, the very power that spoke creation, that spoke you as a new believer, brought regeneration to you, brought your dead heart alive. By that power, Jesus Christ exists in the room. He's not physically in the room, and he has all authority, all sovereign power over the church, but it's by the power of his spirit, he is here. And so Jesus has John telling this church, I have all authority, I have all governance, I am the one that holds the church, I protect the church, so that you don't have to protect the church in the same way. That is his character. Now, the commendation or the challenge comes in Revelation 2, I know your works, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Pause there for a minute. minute. That's accommodation. That is a good critique for the church. Like, praise the Lord if you would come to Heights and say that. I know of your hard work. I know of your patient endurance. Chris Franz just got up, who's going through the elder process. I know that you're testing men. I know you're putting them through a process. I know you're trying to sift them out for the beauty of the church, for the bride of Christ. Strong work. Good job. He also says, and you hate the Nicolaitans. He says that elsewhere. I hate the Nicolaitans too. So we even have that in common. Good job. You're doing great. And then he hits them with this challenge, verse 4. Now I have this against you. This is what you don't want Jesus to say to you, in case you're wondering. No one has that tattooed on them, right? <laughs> Revelation 2, 4, but I have this against you. No one does that. You, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you Repent. So let's recap. Who walks among the lampstands, church? Jesus. You're like, I don't want to be, is this a trick question, Corey? No. Who walks among the lampstands? Jesus. Who holds the power in his hand? Jesus does, right? So Jesus is saying this. You're supposed to be the light, and you're not being the light. And so because you're supposed to be that light, and you're not being that light, I'm going to snatch it out of you. I will remove my very power from your being, from your presence. I will remove the Holy Spirit from you because you're not utilizing the Holy Spirit anyway. 
And so think about this for just a second. He's saying, you have tested those who are apostles. You've discerned proper leadership in the church. You've done incredible things. Like, I love the church of Ephesus church. Oh, my gosh, I wish we had a whole hour to talk about. I love the church of Ephesus, my favorite church. They changed the whole socioeconomic status of their community with the gospel for the worse. Like when they started preaching and teaching the gospel, they started, the people started coming to faith and burning books to this temple goddess named Artemis, and the whole entire culture took an economic decline because the gospel was spreading throughout there, and people were laying down their idols. One of the, if not the, most influential church in the early church and in the New Testament, they do all these incredible things, and Jesus looks at them and says, you didn't do any of that for me, you did it for yourself. See, the church of Ephesus had everything. They had doctrine. They had theology. They had great orthodoxy is what that's called. They had great orthopraxy, if you want to use that word. That is how you take what you know to be true in here, and you push that thing out. But in the midst of their high intellect, their intellect overshadowed their mission. They were more devoted to intellect and learning and study than they were to devotion to Christ. And in effect, and they had lost the gospel. I need you to pay attention here. You can know a lot about the Bible and not know Jesus. That's good. You can know a whole lot about it and never actually know who Jesus is. But listen here. But you cannot know the gospel. And when Corey says the gospel, I mean all of Scripture, but most specifically his life, Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his soon second coming, and then the implications of that on your person, on your family, on your kids, on everything. You cannot know the gospel and not know also a lot about the Bible. You see, the Pharisees were the ones who killed Jesus. They knew everything about the Bible. They had the first five books of the Bible memorized. The majority of Christians can't even name the first five books of the Bible, Right? And they had it memorized. And yet, they're the ones that killed Jesus. Now, when you think about this, arguably, whenever it comes to the disciples that Jesus grabbed, I don't know if you read your Bible, they were just a bunch of good old boys from Capernaum that stood around scratching their bellies, drinking wine and fishing all day. They're from Troy. <laughs> just a bunch of good old boys, right? Some of you are in here. You're like, yeah, that's right. Amen, Pastor. That's all they were. Arguably, they didn't know much about the Bible at all, but tell me what? Tell me they didn't know Jesus. To leave everything? They knew little about the word, and they knew everything about the word to put on flesh. Think about the pagans that Jesus went to minister to, to, to heal, to bring to faith. They knew nothing about the Torah, nothing about the Bible. But man, they knew Jesus. You can know everything about the Bible and not know Christ. It is possible if you love doctrine more than it is to love devotion to Christ. It is possible then to do much in the name of Jesus, ultimately to your own glory and fame. It is possible then to want to be seen in a particular light that never reveals that Jesus has actually changed who you are and what you're about. You can do much without your first love. Revelation 2.7 is the challenge. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so... In context, what he's saying is see Jesus up here walking among the lampstands, holding the very power of the Holy Spirit in his hands. See him first. Hear. hear. You have ears. Hear that. Own that. Believe that. Now let that change your perspective of the early church and also then for a second church, this church of Smyrna. Yeah, I keep cooking up here. Church of Smyrna. Revelation 2, 8. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write 
this. The words of the first and the last who died and who came to life. So we have an immediate Christ characteristic, this attribute of Jesus. Jesus has John lead off here with this reality of the resurrection. He's saying, I'm the first, I'm the last, I'm who died, I'm who came to life. Listen here, there is not another God, church. There is not another religion. There's not another spirituality. There is not another thought that exists in this world that has a resurrection. We get it. We're the ones that Get that. That means then that there's not another religion, there's not another school of thought, there's not another spirituality that gives or promises a future hope. There's only one. And it's seen in biblical Christianity. It's the only one that has a God who would literally leave his whole entire kingdom, come dwell among humanity, walk out perfection, allow that humanity to kill him, put him on a cross, which is the most humiliating place literally in history. I'm going to talk more about it. In a bit, he would die, dead as a doornail, dead. What does the Greek word for dead mean, church? Dead. Good reformed church. Oh, I love you. It means dead, right? Resurrect to new life and then send those who killed him, who profess faith, the same spirit that resurrected him from the dead. And then promise it's just going to get sweeter. There's a future resurrection that is coming where you get to spend eternity with me. That is unfathomable to literally every other religion and school of thought in the cosmos. That is the gospel, though, yes? This is a resurrection hope in Christ, right? What is the character trait here? He has literally defeated death. Think about that. That's what you've been given. He has defeated death. What is the commendation? What is the challenge then for this church? Revelation 2.9 says, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, but you are rich. We looked at that in 2 Corinthians for five weeks. I know of your poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say that they are Jews and they are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. This is Jewish political leaders in the church. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He's saying, be faithful unto death, and I will give you me, life. Be faithful, I will give you life. Jesus starts, and he says here in this text, there are some false witnesses among you. There are some Jews that are among you, and they're turning you into the Roman Empire. They're turning you into the governing authorities. This government right here is not your friend. These false Jews, they were in the, he says here, the synagogue of Satan is how Jesus talks about them. This is all red letter, mind you. He said, as these Jews, they're turning you into the Roman Empire. They're the reason you're going to experience tribulation. They're the reason you're going to experience suffering. They're the reason that you're going to get killed. See, the Jews and the Romans during this time, cultural context, were literally in bed with one another. They, they paid each other off for everything so that they didn't have to deal with one another. But the Christians, specifically, during this time, were seen as the most vile, the most disgusting, the most awful women and men that could ever exist during this time. The cross, specifically, called the crux during this time, C-R-U-X, during this time, would have been seen as the most foul the most disgusting, the most horrific symbol one could ever wear on themselves. That's how they were viewed in this culture. Romans would put Christians up in front of the whole entire city, the whole community, and they would make these Christians 
offer sacrifices to a various or a variety of Roman gods. The Christians that did not offer those sacrifices to the Roman gods were put to death, killed in front of everyone. The Romans that, or sorry, the ones that, the ones that did do it, they were 100%. The Christians that did it, they were allowed to let go. They were let go, just like that. No big deal. They betrayed. What's beautiful about this, in light of the context of what's happening here, is we have, I wish we had so much more time. We have all these incredible historical documents and letters that are written from all these different provinces throughout the Roman Empire to their Caesar during that time. And the letters would say things like this. No true follower of the crux or the cross would ever give sacrifices to our gods. This is the way they talked about them. These true Christians, or the Romans would call the Christians pagans, these true pagans die better than everyone else when tested. They die while singing songs. They die while singing hymns. They die while laughing. What would lead someone to do that? The resurrection. The resurrection hope that is unfathomable for us in this room. We will never have to experience that for the most part. Will the government shut us down in certain ways? Sure, we've seen that in the last two years, but they're not going to do this. And with a great deal of resurrection hope, man, they die singing hymns. That's the church that he's talking to. Jesus is led off here with this. He's saying, literally, I have literally defeated death. We sing a hymn in here. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is that victory? Where is that sting? It died in the resurrection. That's where it's at. And Jesus leads off here and he says, if you want to survive tribulation, if you want to survive suffering, if you want to walk away from the fear of death, you better have a resurrected Jesus that you are transfixed upon, for he's the only one that will sustain you in those moments. Church, I just want you to hear the word of the Lord right now. Like, what does it mean for you if Jesus literally resurrected from the dead? Does it actually change anything about you? Does it change your perspective? Like, think, what does it mean? Okay, Corey, what does it mean? You're supposed to actually tell me what it means. I got it. It means that we serve a God who can fully identify with and understand suffering of cosmic proportions. It means that we get to serve and worship a Jesus that, Jesus that understands a very literal physical death and also a very literal spiritual death as his father turned his face away in the cross and he died. What else does the resurrection mean? It means that there is most certainly, church, a resurrection hope that we can put our dependency in, that we don't have to flee from the fears of death for there is a very real Jesus that died and promised that the second death will no longer have esteem. Do you not understand like the resurrection speaks to literally every one of your anxieties? The majority, every, okay, everyone, I'm not, you're not sold yet, okay, I'm going to tell you. Everyone in the room, regardless of socioeconomic status, race, gender, ethnicity, all have the same thing in common. What's that? We're going to die. Spoiler, cat's out the bag, church, you're a goner, okay? You're done. You're doomed at some point. You're going to die, right? I could have pancreatic cancer right now. What hope would I have in that moment? Of course, I want to walk my little girl down the aisle. Of course, I want to see my young men be raised up into young men. I'm sure I'd have a moment of intense fear and anxiety, no doubt. And at the same time, we have this resurrection hope that has been given to us. Do you see how the book has been written to bring encouragement and empowerment to the church? There is literally nothing for us to fear. For we have a resurrected Jesus that stands at the head of this thing. 
Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. I would say to him who has an ear, let him hear the most amazing attribute of Jesus. He's resurrected. This is why we talk about the resurrection always. We don't bring out a bunch of tricks for you on Easter. We want to preach Easter right now, right? We need the hope literally right now. And so what is he saying in context? He's saying, See the attribute of Christ. There's a resurrected Jesus that stands at the head of the church. Pay attention to that. He who has an ear, let him hear. Now let the resurrection change your perspective for literally everything, specifically in regards to suffering and tribulation. Third church, the church of Pergamum. Revelation 2.12 says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged Sword. The Christ-like character that we see is very simple. I'm not going to overdo it. Jesus' word is the final word. That's the attribute that you see here. That Jesus is the final word. He is God's word that has put on flesh, and he will have the final word forevermore. That's the character trait. And it is his word, as we read the book of Hebrews, that sifts us out. It is his word that comes in and cuts us through bone and marrow and reveals any sort of hidden agenda that we might have. That is, that we are exposed and we are undone before the word of God. That's what that sword does. Cuts through us. And so then what's the commendation, the challenge? Revelation 2 says this, 13. I know where you dwell. Okay? Where what? Where Satan's throne is. Pin that. We're going to come back to it. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. He says that twice. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam and taught Balak. That's from the Old Testament. To put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. That literally happened in the Old Testament. So that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. There's literally a group of individuals come in with this new teaching. and almost brings the demise to Israel. We don't have time to get into it, but you can read it. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which he hates. We already know that. 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He's saying, I myself will come and go to war for my bride. Now stay with me here. I'm going to hit you with something that I've thought about for years, and you guys get like six minutes to consider, okay? Think about the church of Ephesus is the first church that we looked at, although briefly we looked at. The church of Ephesus put more emphasis on the word of God than they did the mission of God. They put more emphasis on the doctrines of Christ than they did on devotion to Christ. The church of Pergamum here in the text, this church right here, does the opposite. They go the opposite direction is what Ephesians have done. And so what I mean by that is this. In an effort to be more inclusive, they actually let go of the doctrines of God, and their devotion is not to Christ. Their devotion is to the culture instead of Christ. Now let me hit you with a pastoral exhortation. The moment you become aim to become more inclusive than Jesus, you will always remain more exclusive than Jesus. You will never, I will never be more inclusive than Jesus Christ. We will never be more inclusive than his gospel. We will never be more merciful. We will never be more gracious. We will never be more inviting. We will, be more, more, we will never be anything more than we are now. Only through Christ, his gospel, and his word should anyone ever be included into the kingdom. 
If we ever step outside of his word, his gospel, we become more exclusive. Does that make sense to you? I'm going to keep saying it a bunch of different ways because you have about six minutes to hear it. Okay? I've thought about this for years. Like, think about it. We have a, there's a whole entire culture that kind of prides itself on inclusivity. But the moment that that enters into the church, what I do in that moment, whenever I say I can be more inclusive than Jesus, then I have said I have a better, I have a better understanding of God's word and how to use it. And, and I have a better understanding of what it takes to save someone and see someone redeemed. I'm a better savior than Jesus. I'm a better Holy Spirit than Jesus. Whenever I pick apart God's word, instead of setting under it in, under its authority, whenever I become authoritative over the word of God, I will always be more exclusive, never more inclusive. You still tracking? Let me illustrate it for you like this. Some of you, when you die and you go to heaven, you're going to be surprised by people you see in there. You're going to be like, dang, I didn't expect Bob to be in here. Jesus is full of grace and mercy. I would never let that guy in here. Right? There's people in your mind that you think their sin, they have out the cross of Christ. Okay, when you hear inclusive, you limit it maybe to LGBTQ+. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about in general. A, a full, don't let the culture inform the way you read the Bible, church. Stop it. I'm talking about in general. There are people in your mind you think they would never make it in. You know why? Because you will never be more inclusive than Jesus Christ himself. You'll never be more merciful. You'll never be more gracious. You'll never be more loving. You'll never be more kind. There is nothing more inclusive and beautiful than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so whenever you look at those two churches, you have to watch. Um, we have to watch, right? You have to watch being conservative to a fault, and we have to watch being too liberal to a fault. If the gospel is too liberal for the conservative, it's also too conservative for the liberal. And I love you enough to remind you that both the conservative church and the liberal church in America are very, very right until they become very, very wrong. And so don't allow your political ideologies or your cultural fears inform the way you read God's word. That was free. <laughs> but I wouldn't say that. <laughs> so keep transfixed on him. What is he saying? My word transfixed on me, on his word first. And his word, what he's saying here, we'll get the final word. 100% of the time, all the time, he's going to get the final word. Here, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Now, what I love about this, this is for free. I actually wrote in my notes, Mike, I actually wrote, this is for free, okay? And so it's what it says right here. What's incredible about this is that in Pergamum, okay, in the, the church of Pergamum, this actually happens. Jesus gets the final word. And so the reason that they call it the, the synagogue of Satan is because there was a throne there that was Zeus's throne or Zeus's temple. And so the synagogue of Satan or Satan's throne or Satan's temple was commonly what Pergamum was referred to throughout history. And what's beautiful about that is that Jesus gets the final word literally through earthquakes and war, as the book of Revelation talks about. What's even more beautiful about that is not only does Jesus wipe that thing out, but in 1920, uh, German excavators and archaeologists come, and they find, they discover Zeus's throne, or Zeus's chair, or Satan's throne, or Satan's chair, however you want to 
worded. German archaeologists come in, they excavate the land, they take um, from the city of Pergamum, Zeus's throne to East Berlin. Fast forward a little bit, 1940, Hitler is a chancellor for Germany. Hitler becomes a dictator for Germany. Hitler's right-hand man, one of his architects, designs the very podium that Hitler walks out on to announce war in the Holocaust after Satan's throne. Think about that for just a second. Satan's throne, Satan's temple, Satan's chair is the very place that the devil of Germany instituted the Holocaust to do mass murder for Jews, 11 million Jews over the course of five years. And what does Jesus do? By the sword of his mouth, he wipes that mother out again. Praise the Lord, right? Through earthquakes and through war. That's just history. That's not conspiracy. That is 100% history inappropriate to teach within the book of Revelation. I told you all we're not going to get into all the crazy stuff, but that is historical and true. Verse 16, therefore, it says, repent. If not, I will come to you soon. I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. That ain't apocalyptic imagery, church. It's saying right now, if you do not purge this sort of thing from the church, I will come and I will tear it down. Our prayer for Heights community is that our exclusivity to the gospel makes people feel uncomfortable by who we attract. Like, I want our doors to swing so wide open to people, and at the same time, may our exclusivity to the gospel bring gospel change to people as they come across the board. Here's what he's saying. See the word of God, respond to that word of God, and then allow the word of God to change your perspective. You still tracking? Cool. Last church I got for you, Church of Thyatira. I'm doing okay. Yeah. Church of Thyatira. To the church in Thyatira, verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write these words. The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. One more time. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So when you think about this Christ characteristic, you have to understand simultaneously the cultural expression that's happening in Thyatira. So Thyatira had two predominant cultural gods. They were the sons of Zeus. And so they were part of the synagogue of Satan as well. So two sons of Zeus are being worshipped in Thyatira. Thyatira was this, uh, originally uh, founded by the Lydians. The Lydians were seamstresses, and they're known for their way for, uh, of creating, using purple material to create kind of a royal display. I know that's a lot to take in, but it's important to note whenever you read this introduction. Because what Jesus is saying in this introduction is that I'm the only son, not those two sons of Zeus. I am the only son, the firstborn son from all of creation. And I'm the only son that comes from any form of royal bloodline that matters. So he's saying you can put purple all over your city. You can worship these two false gods if you want to. And at the end of the day, there's only one son, one royal son with royal blood. And it's his blood that paid for the redemption of the church. And when we think about the bronish, the uh, bron- bron- I can't say now, burnished bronze of his feet, that's an allusion to, that's imagery for war. He's saying this, there's only one son with one royal bloodline that's going to come who's ready to make war to redeem his bride. He will literally stop at nothing. In effect, then, he's saying, tell me which one of those two or either one of those two false gods are going to step up and do anything about it because there's not a thing that they're going to do about it. And so whenever he's engaging then in Thyatira, that's the kind of the imagery that he lays out that we're going to keep reading because they are wildly compromised 
in Thyatira. The previous church is just kind of dabbling in some cultural expression. This church here is full on compromised. Revelation 2.19 says this, I know your works, your love and your faithful service and your patient endurance and that the latter works exceed the first. So we can stop. There's a commendation there. He's saying, look, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance and your latter works exceed the first. You've actually grown in sanctification. You've grown in Christ's likeness. You've done well in that regard. The very few of you that exist in this church. And then he continues then in verse 20, he says, but I have this against you. Here comes the warning, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food, sacrificed to idols. I'll explain this in a bit. 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Verse 22. Behold, I will throw her into a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her, that is, who follow her, who worship her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. Verse 23, and I will strike her children dead. That's not her literal children. That is the followers that are following her. So it may include kids. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to their works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. And so Jesus says, for those that are counterfeits in the church, they're 100% going to be exposed. For those that are trying to walk this thing out, or trying to believe the gospel, who's longing for, looking for this coming, who are walking out repentance and faith, he says, I don't place any other burden upon you. Life is burdensome enough. But for those that are counterfeits in the church, Jesus is roaring towards them. Now, why would he care so much about this? What is actually happening? Sorry if there's kids. I'll try to keep it as PG and PC as I can. What Jezebel would have been teaching during this time is very similar to what we heard about Balaam and Balak in the previous church from the Old Testament. And they were teaching not just sexual morality as if that were bad enough, but what they're teaching is that you can actually experience some form of godlike experience through your sexual exploitation. I'm trying to use bigger words in case there's kids in here. And so they're teaching that. Like the more you pursue fornication, the more you pursue, and they would have really, I can't even explain the imagery for you here. They would do a lot of things in a lot of groups that ex- with the word sexual morality wrapped around it. Can your mind kind of unfortunately figure that out? Okay, adults, cool. And so, and they thought, if you do that, if you partake in that, you will actually be like God. In the moments of those released throughout that experience, that is a godlike moment for you. This is what heaven feels like. This is all that you need. And that's what Jezebel would have been encouraging this early church. This is what would have been running rampant in this church. Think about that. And not only is it like Jezebel, it's not just a single leader that has come in, but history would think or assume that she had close to 1,000 to 2,000 priests underneath her in the church. That is no longer a church anymore, is it? And so it is not that they just kind of allowed some things and they corrected some sin. It is a full-on compromise, no different than what we saw in Israel when we walked that series, Lest We Turn. They literally turned from God in every single aspect except for the few that are in there. And so the writer here, or Jesus is writing through John, and he's saying, no, 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 look at Jesus' character, his kingly rule. He's the only son that matters. It's his royal blood that brings redemption. None of that. And so while Jezebel would have said, no, you can experience more. You can have enlightenment. You just need to feel good. Our culture would say, you do you. 
Hey, just do what makes you feel good. Do what makes you feel right. There's no one can tell you any different. You're your own person. You're your own man. You're your own woman. You should just live a good, fun, full, vibrant life at all costs, no matter who it hurts and no matter what it causes to your psyche. And if you come against that in our culture, what do they say? Well, you're bigoted. But we would look at statistics that say, maybe we're onto something because the rates of depression, the rates of anxiety, the rates of suicide that exist in those realms are catastrophic, off the charts. And yet we're the bigoted one. He says, no, look at his royalty. You need to experience Christ, not that. Like in the right context, yes and amen. But experience Christ, pursue Christ, sacrifice for Christ. Why? Because he did it first. He's only calling us to do the very things that he's done for us. The only way that we grow church as a church is through Jesus's character, not our good works. The only way we grow as a church is through Jesus's attributes, being transfixed on his attributes here. And he knows his church and he loves his church. Every single passage here, he says, here's the attribute of me that you need to survive, to thrive. Anything about you that's commendable, church, is not because you're awesome. It's because Jesus is awesome. And you get to look at his attributes and his character and by his spirit, he actually pours those things into you when you profess faith in him. If you want to be commendable, you look at the only one that's commendable. And you allow him to take up root in your soul and in your life, in the depths of your heart. And literally, as the royal king of all creation, chip away at everything that doesn't look like, you, doesn't look like him and looks like you. You let him come in and just chisel it all away. That's how you do it. It happens through confession, through repentance, and through faith, not through good works. You can do all the best works in the world, church. They won't save you. This is what the church of Ephesus did, yes? Most incredible things lost their first love. Church, we cannot lose the gospel in light of any of these things. Ultimately, that is what happens. The churches that have to receive correction, they have lost their first love. They lost the gospel. The gospel of grace that says, I was once dead and now I'm alive in Christ. The, one, the gospel of mercy that says, man, I thought I could never be redeemed, and yet Christ has redeemed me. Oh, man. And so what do we do with this? As we're sitting in this for two weeks, seven churches, four of them hit today. The thing I want to lead you to do is ask this question. Which church do you most closely represent? We have a really individualistic mentality and worldview as Americans, um, but the reality is the, the way you respond in the church body affects the whole family. You might think you're individualistic, but we're very interdependent on one another. And so if you think about these churches, which one do you find yourself most closely identifying with? Do you find yourself being conservative to a fault where you care more about doctrine than you care about devotion to Christ? Do you find yourself being more liberal to a fault where you care more about the inclusivity of people than the exclusivity of God's word. Maybe you're doing well. Like that's a real reality. Sometimes Christians are the first to chalk up sin, but really you might just be thriving. Like you might experience suffering and tribulation and feel like maybe things at work are hard because of your stance on Christianity and yet you're thriving in the midst of that. And to that, praise the Lord. There was no critique for that church, the church in Smyrna. Maybe there's no critique for you. And praise God for that. He would say, stay the course. Or are you like the fourth church? 
if someone were to look at you, would they know you're a Christian at all, or would they just see American culture all over you? But no evidence of God's grace and mercy anywhere. But the way that we are called to respond to this text is by a change of perspective. Right? We first, we get to know this church first, written to them for us. After we get to know them, then we look up and we say, okay, how do I fit? And at the same time, we just recall the gospel again and again and again. And we say, God, my character, my attributes does not look like you. Thank you for being the God of the scriptures. Thank you for being real. Thank you for standing over us. Thank you for being resurrected. Thank you that your word is the most authoritative word in our community, whether I ever believe it or not. Thank you for going to war for me. You would do anything for me. Thank you for dying for me, for resurrecting for me, for sending me your spirit. He literally says he holds the spirit in his hands. God, you hold us in your hands. Thank you. In my lowest, the gospel does not change. It simply remains the same. That's the takeaway from the text today. Stay with me as we celebrate that with communion. Um, If you're unable to grab a communion cup on your way in, please make your way to the front. You can grab one from up there. It's totally normal and culturally appropriate to do. Uh, Before you start opening those communion cups, though, let me read over you 1 Corinthians 11 as we do every week and just probably lead it into... uh, what we just talked about. It says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. I feel like we could stop there. After looking at the attributes we just saw in Christ, and yet he's willing to be betrayed for our redemption. And when he had given thanks, he broke this bread, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Before we bump any further into Revelation, I want to remind you of this moment. Okay? Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 are 100% necessary to understand the rest of the book. What's going to happen in a few weeks is you're going to see images of war you're going to see some things you can't unsee in the scripture. And you're going to have a moment where you're going to think, where's the grace? And where's the mercy at? It's in this moment right now. Every single church that we're going to engage have been given. They've all been given in the midst of what there's, in the midst of their sin. They've been given the opportunity to confess, to repent, and to turn to Jesus. And because as we celebrate communion, right? For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Communion, as we take in Christ's death, it is a reminder to us that Jesus went to the cross in our place as our substitute. He didn't just die, church. That's, that's a big part of it. But he actually took in all the wrath and all the anger that existed in his father in that moment. And because he's the one that goes to the cross to die and takes all that into himself, he is by extension then the one that gets to unleash all of that on those who have not confessed and repented and turned to him. So when we get to that section, you think, where's the grace, Pastor? Where's the mercy? Listen to me. It's right now. It's true for them in the book of Revelation, and it's true for you right now. The opportunity to confess, to repent, to turn to the one who took all of God's wrath so you never have to experience it. The offer's on the table, and the table is open to those who are saints.